0: This morning I would like to offer some reflections on the theme of awakenings. Prompted somewhat by the questions a few days ago that managed to find their way, not by my planning at all, to the bottom of the pile and therefore got only brief attention. But also because I think it's a topic of real interest and maybe not always spoken to directly and there's a the well-known story of the uh, the Buddha in the Buddha's journey in life where not so long after his awakening he was walking in an open path and encountered someone the first person he actually had met since his awakening had unfolded and the person was struck by how he appeared and uh, how bright he seemed. And he said, Are you a god? Are you a, a spirit? Are you a, a man? What are you? And the Buddha looked at him and said, I am awake. And the person responded, It doesn't look like they were that impressed. It sort of, May it be so? And that was the interaction that's recorded. When we talk about Buddhism, we conflate two pieces of sort of language from different languages. And we could translate the whole thing if we were going to put it into English as awake Or awakeningism. To be profoundly interested and engaged in what this means. And I find sometimes myself more at ease with that language than what becomes the religious framing that becomes associated with Buddhism. Although, of course, that has its value and its importance. But awakism points us to what these teachings are, at their heart, concerned with, what it means for us as human beings to wake up, And of course it's not something that gets talked about that much directly, at least in the insight meditation tradition. And we, we come from a tradition, even though it's mostly a lay practitioner tra- tradition rather than a monastic one, but in the mon- monastic um, rules that these teachings and practices are also framed with, uh, you know, the Buddha talked about his dhamma and discipline. So both his teachings and the frame of of ethical and renunciate behavior that goes with that. The Vinaya, or precepts, as we speak about them. Within that, there's a a stipulation that says that if one should falsely claim an attainment of absorption or insight in terms of the paths and stages of awakening, then one would be, if one should falsely claim this, one would be thrown out of the order. That would be it. There's not many things that that can happen to you for. Other ways of getting your wrist slap happen quite regularly, according to friends of mine who've spent time in the Theravada tradition as monastics. I haven't myself, though I've spent time in the monasteries as a layperson. And because of that, it's very tricky and people are very careful not to make any statement that might suggest they're making a claim as to personal knowledge of attainments in case someone else doesn't believe them, and then, well, how do you prove that? And so mostly one just talks about the deeper dimensions of one's practice with one's teacher or teachers, not with one's friends too much, certainly not with one's students. At least in our tradition, that's kind of the way it mostly is. And so when we turn to this territory it's useful just to notice what arises for us. Maybe interest, maybe not. Maybe questions, maybe not. Maybe a, a somatic energetic response, maybe not. And I'm offering some reflections here from a place in which I am very aware that what we're talking about waking up is something (coughs) that can't be explained. When realized, it's obvious. It's kind of incontrovertibly so. But until that, it's incomprehensible, can't be comprehended by the conceiving mind. There's something about insight, and I'm talking about insight here anywhere on the path, not necessarily just the profound realms of insight at the, uh, the depths of awakening. But there's something that's really interesting about insights. When we have those moments, we see something, it's like, ah, oh, And that this, and this is certainly my own experience and the common and pretty reliable experience of hundreds and thousands of people I've spoken to over the years about this that when we have an insight, when we understand something, there's this really interesting coming together of both a sense of this is completely new and fresh, and at the same time, it's recognized as if. Something in us had already known it without knowing that we knew it. To be fresh, new, and yet recognizable. To be remembered, yet not before experienced. How can that be? It points to something significant here in terms of the territory of what it is to wake up. And all the wakings, the awakenings, the insights and understandings as the heart and mind slowly clarify are all part of this trajectory and share that particular quality, it seems to me. And perhaps it's not always the way they present and are experienced so I'm not trying to make some definitive statement if it wasn't like this, then it wasn't an insight. That's not my suggestion here. and in terms of awakening in the texts, what's spoken about is that the the practitioner in the context of sustained formal practice or out going for a walk in the field or encountering some interesting character, human or otherwise. It happens in all kinds of ways and places in the text and in the experience of people of this generation. That What's described in the text is the opening of the dharma eye. It's like seeing with and through the Dharma. And the way it's articulated, all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. Which, you know, simply states the teaching that we summarize as the understanding of anicca, impermanence. Things that come, go. What is born, dies. What appears, disappears. And this is something we contemplate. And of course... This is not something we won't have contemplated or understood in many ways already and perhaps in profoundly significant ways already. And yet this understanding to go to the totality of one's experience, this, we could say, precursor or initial insight is is accompanied by a release of the holding, the attachment, the craving, grasping, clinging construct which directs itself to things which come and go, which arise and pass. And so it's the, it's the releasing of that holding, that attachment that opens the Dharma eye. Not the, oh, all things that arise are subject to ceasing. That's the insight that we can have on a number of different and always important levels. And in the opening, the releasing, the relinquishing, the dropping away, even just for a moment, of that deeply embedded holding and attachment, it is said that the deathless comes into view if we want to use a visual image for this, or is felt if we, is recognized, is realized. The amara dharma, the deathless, unborn, unfabricated. We have many words for what this points to is it's revealed it's realized and this is something which has a profound impact on the human heart and mind to see this and it isn't something that we see or feel or recognize as an object being seen by a subject, in this case ourselves. In this realm what for some people sometimes happens, and it's not always or only the way it happens, that in the release of that holding and it has to be complete even if just for a moment that's not to say that craving is gone forever, but in that moment, it's not just suppressed as in what happens with the, the absorption states where that particular tendency is in a way no longer active in consciousness. It's, it's more than that. There's actually a, a releasing of it. And that can, for some, and sometimes lead to what's described as the cessation of perception, the construction of the appearance of the sensory world, subject to being seen, smelled, tasted, touched, heard, conceived. This is an experience. And for some, it may be a powerful and profound experience, but it is an experience. And it's not in and of itself definitive. As I understand the teachings and the path. But it's the cessation of the craving, tanha and attachment, upadana. These factors coming to an end even if just momentarily completely ceasing is what allows the the seeing the realizing the knowing the opening of the dharma eye and so because i've had conversations over the years with people saying was this the experience Was that the experience? And it's like, maybe sometimes it was the experience, or maybe sometimes it wasn't. We can ask some questions and get a sense of whether that's likely. But what's more significant is not whether that was the experience. What is the effect? What has been released in the mind and heart? That's what reveals the path. And while what is not that can be mistaken for it. When the awakening that this path points to emerges in the heart-mind, reveals is revealed, is realized, it is unmistakable. because although nothing has changed, at the same time nothing is the same thereafter. And our mind may articulate, describe and conceive what the effect of it is in a range of different ways. Sometimes commonly and classically it kind of expresses in terms of seeing that everything is empty. Empty of inherent existence. So everything is emptiness. And there's always a risk there when we talk about emptiness or the deathless or the Aymara dharma that we start to create a something in our conceiving of it. Of course we have to use words to talk about what we're pointing to. But as in the very wise tradition of, of Zen. They talk about the finger pointing to the moon and not to confuse the finger with the moon. And we might equally experience, and again classically understand, a sense of all is love. All is one. And these have their truth to them. Profound and beautiful. All is empty. All is love. All is one. There are more, of course. And those truths are helpful frames with which we can orient our conceivings. Our thinking, our understanding, our modeling, and our languaging of what is understood. But they, in, the s- in themselves, are not the understanding, but simply the, we could say, reflection of it on the surface of consciousness. In the same way, much of the more mundane thoughts we have are a reflection of what's moving in the heart mind at other levels but as appearing on the surface of consciousness as a thought of this or that. And in this context, I'd like to share an image with you that when I first encountered it, I found remarkably powerful. And it has a little bit of a, a backstory which I'll come to. And when I arrived this morning, I'm travelling this afternoon to Oxford to teach a day retreat there tomorrow. And so I came with all the things. And there was this little part of me that got here and thought, oh, I didn't bring that piece of paper when I got to the hall. Did I leave it in my room? Did I leave it in my car? Did I leave it at home? And I thought, oh, I'll just let it go. I don't need it but then I thought I'll go and look. So I have a little bit less time than I had hoped but a little bit more resource. There's the balance. And what I want to speak about here feels really important to me because what we get as images and as stories and articulations of what it is to awaken is really significant for us and much of what we have received in this lineage and tradition arises and emerges out of a two and a half thousand year old male dominated monastic tradition. So completely outside of lay life and profoundly dominated by patriarchy. And so consequently, the images we have tend to look a bit like the hero going out and doing battle with the demons of the mind and eventually subduing them to become the great and all hail the victor. And it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful story. There's a truth to it. But it's not the only story we could tell here. And so quite some years ago, I was actually teaching a retreat in Bodhgaya, India, um, in the in the 90s, and um, I encountered a copy of Inquiring Mind, this magazine then published in paper out of California, with the out of the Insight Meditation Committee and, and it was this article, and it was written by a Zen teacher, Norman Fisher, and he was talking about an alternative story of the awakening. So the the story we know and probably many of us really appreciate and value. The story we know involves the Buddha encountering the uh, the heavenly messages, seeing old ageing, seeing sickness and decay, seeing death, and seeing a renunciate spiritual seeker and realising that, oh, ageing, sickness and death have some implications for me, as in they apply to me, and therefore why don't I go look for that? which is not bound in those conditions of ageing, sickness and death. That was his, his fundamental shift. And it said he, he, he went home and he, he just left the castle or the ca- palace or whatever it's probably palace or very large comfortable house for those days where he lived. And he left behind his wife and young baby boy. And, he, and the line sort of says something like, I couldn't even look at them to say goodbye because I might not have been able to maintain my resolve and I went out there and he was a charioteer headed off into the, the wilderness of, of Indian spiritual um, explorations or ex- spiritual ins- explorations within the traditions then present in India. And six, seven years later, we know the story, sat under the Bodhi tree, did battle with Mara, you know, came through. beautiful. Beautiful. That's what came through to us in the Hinayana, or the, sorry, the Theravada, the tradition of monastic teaching that we come from. But there's another tradition for which we have all the texts that was preserved in the Chinese and the Tibetan, that was from a contemporary tradition that arose at the same time as this one that we have come through as our lineage, the Saravastavadian tradition. And it forms the basis of the Vinaya, as in the precept framework, for the Tibetan Buddhist order. And they have it all, Tibetan and Chinese. And what this tells is the story, is what I want to share with you, because it's a story of awakening that's rather different. And he uses the rather lovely pun. It's a different renunciation story. You know what nuns are, I'm understanding. Sorry if that's an obvious re-emphasis. And according to this story, the Buddha didn't leave his wife and child in the middle of the night. And this, as he was leaving the palace, he goes to his wife to tell her he's leaving. And he's full of love for her. And he, he says... I'm leaving. Her response is, take me with you. Take me with you. And he says, very well, wherever you go, I will take you. Sorry, wherever I go, I will take you. And they make love and conceive the child, Rahula. And then he's off. And in this story, the Buddha goes through his challenges and his sort of journey. And so too does his wife, Yasodhara, a sixth a seven year pregnancy with this baby boy. And just as the Buddha is tempted by Mara under the tree, so too Yasodara encounters Mara who tells him tells her that the Buddha to be her husband, Siddhartha, has died, and she's so grief struck stricken she almost loses the baby. And then she hears that this isn't true from someone else. And the story culminates in the full moon eclipse night of the Buddha's awakening. And at the same time, as the Buddha takes some food and sits under the tree, and Yasodhara is supported by the news that her husband is alive, he is awakened and she gives birth. And the story tells it as two inextricable parts of a wholeness of awakening of an inseparable expression of path and fruition and I find it profoundly moving and one of the reflections that comes with this actually let me show you the picture that comes I don't know how well you'll be able to see this the title of the article in Inquiring Mind was The Sacred and the Lost and if you see it's a it's two halves joined together the renunciate Buddha and the childbearing or the mother Yasodhara together. And uh, the light of the full moon bright above the Buddha and of the eclipse above Yasodhara. And the teaching here and the wisdom here is that both, in their dedication to the sacred, to the blessed, to the beautiful, to the fulfillment of what is possible for a human being, they both give something up. The spiritual practitioner or ordained monastic gives up the lay life. The lay person gives up the monastic life and we can see that expressions of, of and understandings of what awakening mean perhaps open up in this context as something that involves not just an individual's journey and culmination in some particular personal experience, which of course, when we understand the teaching of anatta, shunyata, of not-self, of emptiness, there can't be anything personal in awakening. It's something that has to happen and only happens in a context, which is interwoven with everything. I'll put a smaller version of this image up after the talk on the notice board if you want to contemplate it. And so we might talk about in this territory again So what's the effect of this? What happens? What do we understand here in this territory? Because this is really the marker of what's happening and what's happened and what's yet to happen or in the process of happening we could say is the understanding that we find emerging. And understanding isn't just conceptual articulations but actually... Understanding is that quality which when we really have understood something, our actions completely and effortlessly, though not without challenge and sacrifice, completely and effortlessly align with this. When um, the French philosopher said, Ga- Gaillot said, if we understand something but we do not act accordingly, I'm paraphrasing here, If we understand something but we do not act accordingly then we know or we understand it imperfectly. And so the journey, the path of awakening is one in which certain understandings become known in such a way not that oh yeah that makes sense but actually one's life has no choice in fact but to become aligned with this. And in talking about what that means for us, there was a, a teaching that I first encountered when I came to Guy House to sit the first time in 1990 at the old Guy House a few miles across the, um, the way there in Denbury. And someone had written a quote from a Tibetan teacher who is much respected and loved that said and I used this quote many times, it said you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you see this you will understand that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And these words still speak to me beautifully, powerfully. At the risk of gilding the lily, I would often reflect upon what does that mean to people perhaps who could hear as well as I could what that means. But there's more to the story, and yet I just want to move through this. What it is to live in illusion and the appearance of things. The appearance of self in the world, of inner and outer, of this and that, to believe that we are separate from the fail to understand, the interpenetrative, interdependent, interconnected, interexistence of not just ourselves and everything else, but of all that we encounter, when we identify with that which comes and goes what appears and disappears, arises and passes, we become bound to the fear of death. And it feeds and informs so much of what goes on that leads to our suffering, our pain and our distress. And it's a little bit like a wave on the ocean, out there having a nice day, cruising along thinking, hey, I'm a wave. And then it sees the shore, Up ahead, and it's like, huh, wow, what's happening there? Those waves up ahead, they're getting destroyed. And it gets scared, it gets worried. Oh my gosh, I don't think I want that. And then, hey, this wave, it realises there's no reverse gear on this thing. It's always and only going that way. And what happens, of course, the wave, whether it tries to resist or whether it just says, What can I do? In the end, it crashes onto the shore, as has every wave, and as will every wave. And of course, the wave is gone. But what happens to the water? What happens to the water? Nothing. The nature of the water is um. Not just unharmed, but unperturbed by what has taken place. And so we're invited to look and equally to hear and to smell and to taste and to touch and to conceive whatever it is that are the objects of these sense capacities we have as human beings. The five physical senses and the heart-mind which conceives and knows. And to understand that all of this that is changing is not to be held on to. Because it cannot be held on to. And does not need to be held on to. To in any way preserve us. That doesn't mean we don't take care of it. That's very different. And equally as we see this more and more deeply, we realize that, or we we see and hear, that this is not all that is revealed here. And the Buddha's teaching, the teaching of the awakened one, points to the Dharma which is unchanging, which is birthless, deathless. Nibbana is the language that's used. And the language translates in different ways, but most usefully as a going out of a fire. The, the ending, and this is how the Buddha talks about it, the ending of being bound and craving in aversion, and the delusion born of this that we are separate from. And so in the, in the quote, you, there is a reality you are that reality. When we don't hold ourselves separate from what we are in contact with, or what we perceive or imagine ourselves to be in contact with, when we don't give authority to the appearance of the subject over here in relationship to an external and separate object over there we start to sense perhaps what in the metaphor of the wave I called the water what in the teachings we call the the awakened nature what is fundamental to what is here. we don't do this via the mind or the physical senses the conceiving mind can't go here but the heart mind what we call chitta, can realise this because it is this we could say and as soon as I say this of course we imagine something and there, in the problem of language wherein the, the wiser ones than me just keep silent on this. But there we are. This human being is an instrument which has the capacity to know its own nature. To directly realise and abide in its own nature. And whatever is to be discovered and known of this is as I said before both completely fresh so something that hasn't been and can't be known and at the same time familiar and recognisable in the encounter, in the opening. And yet Nothing we can put our finger on and say this is it. As T.S. Eliot expressed it in the Four Quartets, he says, we will not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And it's not something else or somewhere else other than where you are right now or apart from what is here right now. As Rumi put it, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. When you see this, you will realize you are nothing, no thing. Thingness is an appearance, an attribute arising due to the way consciousness takes objects. When we see deeply into what is here, the urge to take hold of these to use them to somehow construct or define a particular me, self, subject, drops away. And in this we find freedom, to know there is no thing, the presence or absence of which defines us. To know this deeply and unshakably is to release the heart and the mind from craving for things that could or might or we imagine should and will define us. And yet, not in any way holding ourselves apart from all of that or imagining that what we're talking about is some other location or realm or dimension or sort of spiritual escape hatch. To see we are no thing. Seeing nothing, you are everything. You understand we are everything. Sometimes when we see that we are nothing, no thing, thingness is constructed and dissolves. It's kind of like we're kind of more seeing through the wisdom eye that sees emptiness. When we see that being nothing we are everything, it's kind of more like seeing through the, the eye that we could call not so much wisdom but love. And its expression is compassion. Where we see the non-separateness. And so mu- not so much about not being defined by, but actually not being apart from everything that emerges, that appears, that shows here. And in this, profoundly connected. Profoundly connected, and where the natural, innate caring of our heart, which has as its, as a part of what it is that we could say we are, or an expression of that, that cares profoundly and deeply. But is easily limited by our misconstruing and misconceiving of. Of separateness of disconnection to hold back from allowing itself to expand to its fullness of really holding all that appears within it this here the heart opens when there is love and there are no boundaries Love is boundless and unbound and expresses itself naturally. And the last line that is all. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Nothing special. Just how it is. For quite a long number of years I've not shared that quote because I came to know some time after I fell in love with it that the teacher who was a greatly loved and respected Tibetan practitioner tulku incarnate lama according to their tradition, had been engaged in illicit sexual relationships with students who were required to conceal it and keep it secret to their profound harm. And I felt I can't use this teaching unless I also name that was what was the reality. I just want you to notice, because that's quite a shift in the territory that I'm talking about. And how that lands for you, and maybe I should have, had a little more lead in. So I hope it lands okay. And if not, you can let me know. Because in this territory, this is important. Really important. The territory of awakening is powerful. And the Buddha spoke of his teachings that if you grasp, they're like a snake. And if you grasp it at the wrong end, it will bite you. one of the founders of Gaia House, no longer teaches here and hasn't for many years because of a similar situation that became apparent. He was my first teacher. We have to be really careful with what awakening brings because the light and the brightness of it is powerful. But there is very clearly a trajectory in which there can be some very genuine degree of awakening and yet still some profound blindness coexistent in the same not-self. And it's a great teaching for understanding not-self. We can both be very awake here and really asleep here. And if we don't understand that, there are risks for us. So I think in the context of awakening, it needs to be said that we need to take care with charisma and with idealization of teachers. And in some traditions, the teacher never claims to be aligned, but always says, my teachers were aligned. And the very clear implication is that their students will be led to say the same of themselves. And here, fully aligned according to the archetype and the tradition as represented by the Buddha, there is no possibility of acting in a way that will cause harm. I haven't met someone where I felt I know that this is true in a way. And I've met some wise and profoundly transformed and beautiful teachers. And a student asked me some years ago, is it okay to love one's teacher? And I was a bit sort of touched by that because I had a lot of contact with the person. Maybe they were talking about me. I didn't know. They didn't say. But anyway, my response was, "Yeah, I loved my teachers. I still love my teachers. They've changed some of them. Who from the person, the individuals concerned, some of them are no longer my teachers. But I love my teachers. But we need to understand that they are still human beings." So I want to finish with a quote from, it's recorded in the text as slightly gendered, but I'm going to say layperson Pang. And this person is recorded as having written some centuries ago, My daily affairs are quite ordinary, but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything, don't reject anything. Nowhere an obstacle or conflict. Who cares about wealth and honour? Even the poorest thing shines. My miraculous power and spiritual activity. Drawing water and carrying wood. When the mind is at peace, the world too is at peace. Nothing real, nothing absent. Not holding on to reality. Not getting stuck in the void. You are neither holy nor wise, just an ordinary person who has completed their work. may our practice here together serve the deepening of wisdom and love and bear fruit in the awakening of the heart and mind that the Buddha's teachings and the teachings across many beautiful authentic spiritual traditions of our world point to, as our birthright, as human beings. May we all awaken to this, in this, as this, for our own deep well-being, for the welfare of all beings, and the well-being of all that is and all that lives.